place it comfortably. So, what are we up to? Day three. Day three? I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, to give this talk a title, to hang it on, um, it's Zen and the Creative Spirit. But as a way of beginning, I'd just like to um, bring back in words um, some of the experiences we shared this morning out when we were walking along here, just to bring it back and remind everyone of it. But one of the the experiences that stuck in my mind and was very vivid is when we were down there walking near where the cows were. So there's these, these black cows mooing in the white mist Right, like a very vivid experience. Right? And um, another one that stuck in my mind was when we were by the pond, where the lilies are before we came up with little lotuses. I don't know what they are, but those round, beautiful plants floating on the surface. And so there's this one pond and all these many lotuses, right? Like it, it's the one and the many right there in front of us, you know, of nature showing us that in some way. And the other interesting one was when the smoke alarm went off. And so we get this shrill kind of noise, you know, human-made machine noise, shrill noise, and then that stops, and then we get the sound of a kookaburra. (laughs) Just the the randomness of nature. And and what's all all of those experiences is the experience of contrast. The black, the black cows and the white mist. Do you know the, the one pond and the many lotuses. Do you know the, the one shrill sound, unnatural sound, and the next shrill natural sound. Right? Things which are opposite and yet come together, and it's the bringing together of opposites or bringing together of contrasts in a intelligent way is what makes up a lot of art. It's what makes art interesting or music interesting. Or literature, interesting. Do you know all of those shades and, and light and dark coming in and contrasting one another, um, rather just monotone. Mm-hmm. And that's the nature of, of life itself. And we're very fortunate to be actually doing a session or choose to do a session in a place like this, which is not only a, um, uh, a spiritual retreat centre with a wonderful history behind it that, that Sister Angela created and the and the Sisters of Clare. Um, but it's actually a wildlife reserve, you know, teeming with nature. So we've got the best of both worlds. We've got this kind of traditional place of worship, in a sense, to practice in. And, and we're in nature at the same time. And, and uh, being in these natural surroundings is, is like it's teachings all of the time. If you really notice it and, and immerse yourself in it, it's teaching you all the time. Um, and when we look into nature all around us, walking through the forest and so on, what we see is life emerging, like renewing and dying off, and re-emerging, dying, reborn. So we're seeing life and death right there in front of our eyes when we go through the forest. And again, to come back to the Totatsu's three barriers, you know, that I was talking about last night. Well, with that last one, you know, when you're freed from birth and death, you will know where to go. 
If you want to understand that koan, just look at what the plants and the trees are doing and what nature is doing, and it'll show you. Uh-huh. Right there. Right there. When we're in a beautiful natural surrounding like this as well, um, it brings us back to understanding that life is not mechanical and we can get caught up very much you know, in city life and modern living with computers and machines and everything into very sort of habitual mechanistic kind of way of living, but not only that, of, of understanding ourselves. You know, and when I was talking about reductionism and, and, uh, and materialism and so on, the way that manif- manifests and the way we start to see ourselves as human beings, if we believe in it, is that we're machines, you know, and we'll just work out the algorithms and all the causes and effects and we'll create artificial consciousness, etc., etc. We're not machines. You know? Life, conscious life, is not a machine. And the difference between a machine and something which is alive is that the thing which is alive is always moving. The machine doesn't have to move. You put a, um, a clock up in your, in your attic and you don't use it for a year, you can go up there and start it off again and it will work, right? Because it doesn't have to keep moving to function again. But you put your pet rabbit up there and leave it for a year you know, and come back. It's not, it's not alive anymore. It has to keep moving. Heart has to keep pumping, lungs have to keep pumping. Yeah. And one of the things, um, if we look into nature, that we see, see, human beings have got this idea we've had, it's not always been the view, it's more like a modern view, but it's not the view of traditional indigenous cultures of animism, but the, the kind of modern view is that we're the only intelligent beings around. and you read in the papers we're slowly just discovering that maybe dogs have intelligence or cats have intelligence maybe trees have intelligence but what they're realizing if you if you look at the the really great science that's coming out is cells have intelligence cells make decisions do you know they make judgments and decisions do you know and they have actions and they actually uh, will self-sacrifice for the good of the whole, right? So there's intelligence right down at the cellular level and at the organic level and at the being level of a human being or any any kind of life that is around. You know, it's not just human beings. Um, but we've assumed this position of arrogance, you know, that we're the only intelligent creatures around. And we should remind ourselves, you know, we used to think that the, everything revolved around the Earth. And we're, oh, okay, actually we, we revolve around the Sun, you know, and we're just one little solar system amongst many. You know, we've, we've got a very, human beings have got a, had a very um, egocentric way of understanding their place in life. You know, but we realise that Buddha nature pervades the whole universe. And it's a kind of organic intelligence that pervades everything. Um, some of you, some of you may know of this uh, um, mathematical formula that goes goes through all of um, of nature, or maybe not. 
but it's referred to um, sometimes as the golden ratio or the God ratio, but the, the technical term for it is the Fibonacci sequence, which was after the name of a man called Fibonacci. Now, the understanding of this is not a modern one. It goes back like centuries, like to like sixth century and so on. But people looked into nature and observed nature and they realised that it followed certain sequences, you know, in, in a formula. And the formula can actually be reduced to a ratio, a ratio of proportions and things, which is 1.618. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's very interesting. You can see that formula and those proportions um, working themselves out in all kind of um, uh, beings, like the spiralling of shells or the way that leaves grow on trees so that they're spaced well enough and actually turned exactly the right way so they get the maximum sunlight and they don't block other leaves. And even in our own bodies, the proportions are there that are according to that ratio. Apparently, with you know, very it's not completely accurate, but it's close, that there's a ratio between how high we are and how far our belly button is from the ground, and it follows a ratio. Or our arms and, you know, the proportion of our limbs or our faces. Wow. <laughs> Right? There's kind of a, a, a mathematical formula, a kind of an intelligence that runs through all things. Now, I'm saying there is a God creator who created it necessarily in that sense. Maybe there is, we don't know. But there certainly is an intelligence that runs things, through all things, and we're part of that. And um, as I was mentioning the other day about um, there's a new kind of theology called process theology, See, we've, we've, often, we've often thought of God as a, an engineer, you know, or maybe like an accountant or something, you know. Um, but if you start to think of God as a poet, right, working in metaphor and alliteration and rhythm and so on, bringing opposites together, or you think of God as like a musician, you know, bringing, creating that, it kind of gives you a different sense of what, what God the creator is. Right. Um, but you don't necessarily think, need to think it's a separate thing out there somewhere. It's in the process of living. It's in the intelligence of all things. Um, through my reading of um, um, Ian McGilchrist, um, one, of the, one of the things he wrote about that um, I felt a very strong affinity with is that... Um, as a young man, he was really uh, touched by the poetry of Wordsworth. And, and I had the same experience. I read his poetry and I just loved it. You know, it was kind of a, it felt like a, a spiritual kind of religious experience almost reading it. And he even quotes the same passage out of the same poem that really touched me, which I'll read to you. Um, and it's lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey which were written about 1795, which is near the River Wye in Wales. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky 
and in the mind of man, emotion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought and rolls through all things. Beautiful line, that last line, and rolls through all things. The Tao is describing the Tao, we call it God, whatever you want to call it, Buddha nature. It just rolls through all things, the lead, the patterning of things. And to come back to that, um, that uh, uh, Fibonacci principle, if you look into nature and you look at the patterns of Lee, you know, you get, um, you get uh, spiraling patterns is one of the patterns. Meandering is one of the patterns like a, a vine, spiraling like a shell or some plants, how they spiral, meandering. Then you get packing, like the packing of a, a flower bud, and then what they call exploding, which is the bursting forth of the flower bud, and branching, where things just sort of meander and go off in different directions, you know. But there's an, there's an intelligence in it, and there's also a purpose in it as well. And we're like that as well. We, our, when we, we talk about coming back to our true nature in Tototsu, Three Barriers, we're coming back to that very natural, organic intelligence that runs through us. A lot of it is, un, is unconscious. The conscious part of our mind is just one tip of the iceberg. Right? This is all unconscious intelligence which is going on all the time, which we don't see. <clears throat> Choco says in um, one of our readings um, that Zen is an active life, not a life of passively doing nothing. It's true. But I'd just like to add a, another dimension to that as well, that Zen is a creative life, not just a life of doing nothing. It's a creative life, not a mechanical life. It just comes out of habituation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I say it's a creative life, I don't mean necessarily it's a creative life as in you should all be practising the arts like music or dance or you know literature or whatever. They're wonderful things to do and they can be expressions of sin. But there's many different ways in which our, our lives um, <coughs> can be um, creative, right? I mean, one way of being creative is to be a mother or a father, you know, and to creatively bring up a child. That's one way of being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, as we know, in Japan, um, Zen is associated quite a lot with a number of the, the different arts, you know, um, martial arts, bonsai, pottery, um, shakuhachi, etc. No play, and uh, it's no accident that that arts come out of a Zen spirit um, because they're an expression of what they call in um, Japanese Zen mushin, no mind. The mind that's just, it's aware, but it's not stuck anywhere. It's unfettered. And so it just flows like nature. And it's that flowing experience which is very important in, in the production of art, whether it's writing, or playing music or whatever. In my own experience of learning how to play
play a, a flute and playing rhythmical music, um, one of the things that's come out of that for me is having a greater appreciation of what flow is. And if you try to practice music by, you know, fixating on one note or, or one, one phrase, you know, or where your fingers should go, you're losing. Right? So the, the mind has to pay attention with not, without clinging anywhere mm-hmm, for you to be play, able to play that kind of music, okay? But it's a metaphor for the way that we live our lives too. We need to pay attention but we need to pay attention in a certain way where we're not we're not grasping on to bits and pieces or things like those clinging to bushes and grasses. You know, it's it's just a wide angle lens being aware of everything coming and going simultaneously without getting stuck anywhere. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the arts can cultivate that, but we can just cultivate that in everyday life if we really give ourselves over to what it is we're doing. And, uh, you know, like I said before, like being a, being a parent, you know, is, can be a, a, a creative experience. You know, so there you are, you, you need to nurture a child like you would nurture a bonsai tree. Mm-hmm. And you've also got to prune the bonsai tree, right? So, You've got, to, you've got to shape it, you know, so like if you've got a baby, you know, when you're bringing up a child, you've got to water it and nurture it and feed it and love it. But you've also got to put boundaries and discipline in as well. You've got to prune behaviours that are not socially acceptable, you know. There's a shaping process that goes on. So all of that is creative as well. There's many, many different ways. Well, we can have creative conversation, you know, you just sit down with someone and you both just start talking and something interesting comes out of it, some spark comes out of it rather than just being mechanical. There's many, many different ways um, in which we can be creative. And to come back to a theme that I was mentioning in a Dharma talk um, a couple of weeks ago where I was critiquing some aspects of modern Western Buddhism where I think there's too much of a focus on self-compassion and self-love, but but not an equal balance position with Mm self-critiquing. And if you're going to be a writer um, or you're going to create something, whatever that might be, you have to have a, a loving, nurturing connection with whatever it is you're creating, and you have to be self-critiquing at the same time. Like if you, you write, you kind of just pour it all out right, with creative writing, and then you've got to really critique it and edit it and prune it, you know, so it's shaped into something. And um, as human beings, if we're going to grow like a like a bonsai is going to grow, we need to be both self-nurturing and self-loving and we need the ability to self-critique as well. Uh And uh, we're not just all little fragile flowers, you know, that are going to wither away if we critique. You know, part part of nature is to be resilient. And if you're resilient, you can handle, I don't mean destructive criticism, but good, solid critique, being willing to be honest about what you what you're doing, and then to reassess it and nurture it.
Um, with what I'm about to say now, um, maybe I'm, because we're in a, a Christian monastery, um, and maybe I'm channeling um, Sister Angela in some way who <laughs> created this place. But um, if you think of, you know, the fact that we're conscious, you know, consciousness is the divine spark in each of us. Like it's a real miracle that we're actually conscious right now, that we're alive right now, there's something rather than nothing. And that create that consciousness, you can't name it, you can't define it, you can't hold it. But we know that it's there. It's the most it's the closest thing to us that we know. Right? Um, and you could call it a, a divine spark, and it's there um, in all of us. And when you look at it that way, you know, Zen or even mindfulness can be turned into a technique. Are we going to do this? Then it'll be the cause of that occurring. You know, like calm mind or, or even Kensho experience or something. This will lead to that. Um, but if you get caught up in that cause and effect, this will lead to that kind of mentality. You're missing the point of Zen practice. The point of Zen practice is to be that divine spark. Right? It doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It just has to be itself and express itself however it expresses itself. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to, to, to see practice in that way rather than a step-by-step, to simply a step-by-step process to get somewhere. Yes, that's part of it. Right? We, we do mature as we do this practice. We do step-by-step Zazen practice and we become calmer and develop our concentration. But that's not really the point of it. If you really see into your true nature, it's like you, you're just completely alive to that divine spark which is there. We come back to this idea of the idea that we, that we often, in modern life we see life as a machine and just have to work out the causes and effects and we can we can create artificial intelligence or artificial consciousness. Well, what I'd like to tell those guys is actually there's a simpler... If you want to create consciousness and you want to create intelligence, there's actually a simpler, more natural way of doing it. You make love and you create a baby. (laughs) A conscious, intelligent being. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are. That's what we were when we were born. This mysterious thing, like in the womb, became conscious. Something was unconscious became conscious. Like miracle, okay. And we're still that miracle. Each one of it. So when you bring this also to what we're doing now, the practice of meditation, and some of you, the practice of um, koan study, um, it's an art of having a focused mind, which, as Ian Gilchrist tells us, is a you know that conscious focused mind. It's like a left hemisphere kind of function, but at the same time, it can't be narrowed down to anything. It's got to be focused in the present moment, but it can't be holding anywhere. And it's got to be large. It's got to be like a, a wide-angle lens that's just taking in everything and excluding nothing and not clinging to it and letting it come and go. 
If that, then we do that, we bring the, the two hemispheres together and we've got what we call shikantata. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the nature of practice. And when you do koan study, it's kind of a, an art of being conscious, like having a, a clear intention is that I, I want to resolve this koan, like a strong intention, clear intention, but you can't try too hard either. You've just got to let it sit there and it's like you've got to allow the unconscious to come forward you know, and bubble up and it's like, ah, oh. so it comes up like that. But if you're just caught in your conscious mind trying to work it out, then you'll be further and further away from it. One of my favourite Australian writers, poet and novelist, David Malouf, um, wrote a novel once, and I forget the name of it, I must dig it out. But in there, he's, he, there's a passage about a man fishing by a river, and, and he's kind of a bit of a lazy fisherman, just throwing his hook over there and letting it go down. He's not too concerned about whether he catches a fish or not, but he's, he's there fishing. And um, he describes so beautifully and so poetically that at the bottom of this big pond, there's this beautiful golden fish down there with really wonderful patterns and fins, you know, swimming around, and it's really exotic. And, and it gradually kind of nibbles at the bait, you know, and so on. And then gradually gets hooked, and then the fisherman very, very slowly pulls him up out of the pond, out of the dark, and then suddenly that is there on the light, you know, this this big fish, you know, this extraordinary creature from down there, out in the light with all the, you know, glistening in the sunlight, you know, on all the scales, and um, all of that is literal, right, as part of the story. And also, it's a metaphor for the creative process, right? That the fish being down there, this this vague idea or thing in the in the depths, you know, and we just kind of lazily throw the hook in, you know, look around, and then suddenly the fish takes the bait, and you can gradually pull it up to the surface, to the conscious surface. That's how the creative process works. But like I said, it's not just in the art; it's in we bring that mooshing, you know, to our everyday life. Um, one Japanese teacher, um, whose name escapes me right now, but he was a well-known, um, one of the pioneers of Zen in, in, in America, um, brought up an old, an old um, Zen saying from China as a way of describing Zen practice. And he said, well, it's like it's going, going fishing with a straight hook. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you go fishing with a straight hook? Right? You're not going to catch anything right, if you go fishing with a straight hook. You need a curved hook. Right? Um, but that's his point. So you, we all go fishing for our true nature. Um, and you throw your line in, you know, and you're waiting to catch something, but it was already here in the first place. Right? That's what going fishing with a straight hook is. You're going fishing, you're doing something, um, but you're just kind of enjoying the experience of sitting there with your line in, right? and you realise that 
you're a complete expression of Buddha nature right here now. That's where you get to. That's the purpose of life, to realise your true nature. Okay, thank you.